Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Monday, October 2nd. Stocks are up, oil prices are down, and we're focused on the right to vote. We're now less than 24 hours away from the latest, most important election of our lives, and expectations are that a record number of ballots will be cast. What we don't know, though, is what the vote total could be, or would be, if not for voter suppression. A few things to know. First, record turnout doesn't negate the realities of voter suppression. We can have both more people than ever before vote, and still have people improperly discouraged from, or prevented from voting. Two, you've no doubt heard already about lawsuits being filed to either invalidate ballots or limit the amount of time that ballots can be counted. It's worth remembering modern American elections have always offered mail-in ballots and counted votes past election eve. It only became controversial in 2020. Three, not all voter suppression is intentionally designed to suppress. For example, we've got some states that have been forced to close polling locations due to COVID-related troubles in getting enough volunteers. But in the end, it has the same impact. Finally, there is an argument to be made that the tightest demographic tie to voter suppression isn't so much race as it is poverty. It's a case being put forth by Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and philanthropist Lorene Powell Jobs. We speak to both of them about what they're watching for tomorrow in 15 seconds. But first, this. We're joined now by Reverend William Barber, coming to us from his home state of North Carolina, and Loreen Powell-Jobs, who I should note is an early Axios investor, coming to us from her home in California. Reverend Barber, poverty and voter disenfranchisement are intrinsically tied, but it seems that voter suppression isn't always discussed in direct relation, at least to poverty. Can you unpack for listeners a little bit how you view those two things as being linked? Thank you so much. I'm glad to be on with Lorraine. You know, what is sad is just that what you mentioned is not often discussed, even though in 1965, at the foot of the Alabama State House in the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, Dr. King actually put them together quite well. He said that every time there's the possibility for black and white poor people to form the political alliances that could change the country, he said the aristocracy or the bourbon class was so division, so segregation, so racism. Today, the way we analyze in the Poor People's Campaign is normally voter suppression is thought of as just something of impacting black people. The reality is voter suppression is targeted at black people, brown people, indigenous people, and even poor white people and women. But here's where the linkage comes. When you do the deeper analysis, first of all, every state that is a racist voter suppression state is a high poverty state. Those who benefit from racist voter suppression vote against living wages. They vote against safety net programs. They vote against expanding health care. They vote against so that those who benefit from racist voter suppression, once they get power, they use that power that even hurts white people, particularly poor and low wealth white people. In fact, it hurts all poor people. And they tend to vote once they get elected through racist voter suppression for corporations. In terms of what I say, they vote to make corporations like people and people like things. 
Lauren, 2020 is a particularly interesting year when it comes to voting. It's obviously not like something any of us have ever seen before because of the pandemic and whether that be expanded early voting, obviously the mail-in voting, which differs from state to state. This year, do you believe that voting has been expanded this year? I don't think that franchise has. Vote by mail or absentee voting isn't enfranchisement. It's just a method. It's a tool to voting. We are seeing youth voter registration up as compared to 2016 in key states like Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Texas. We're seeing record numbers of people early voting. I think over 90 million people have already voted early in both in-person and mail-in ballots. I think what we're seeing is more voter engagement, despite the fact that we've had over 80 lawsuits that have been enacted by the GOP and the Trump administration with the express desire to make voting harder. So the elimination of drop boxes, the shutting down of polling places, a lot of disagreement about when mail-in ballots have to be received and how they have to be postmarked and whether signature match has to happen. You see a lot of rejected ballots that over-index in populations that typically vote Democratic versus Republican. So we're seeing efforts to disenfranchise. At the same time, we're seeing record numbers of voter engagement and people being very, very politically active. Two things can be simultaneously true at once in 2020. One, that for certain people, or for many people, this year it is easier to vote because you don't necessarily have to do it between the hours of, you know, eight and eight on a particular day. But at the same time, we might have a larger overall population trying to vote, and thus the suppression is hitting potentially different portions of the population. I think that's correct. It has so many layers. We know every year when the election is going to be. We know every two years, every four years. What, second two, the first two, then every November. And yet we have all these long lines of voter suppression. In the CARES Act, Republicans refused to put the money necessary in to help states be ready for this season. Can you give us some historical context for how we got to where we are this year? I think it's important when you talk about voter suppression, I like what Maureen just did, is this history. Understand this business of dividing to conquer, dividing the population, deliberately splitting, using hate to split and suppressing the vote is not new. In 1968, Pat Buchanan went into Richard Nixon with Kevin Phillips and said, listen, we have a plan and it's called positive polarization. We can split the country, deliberately split the country for political gain. And if we split it in half, we will get the bigger half. We also need to know that what is moving people now is the wedge issues don't make any sense. People are hurting, so they're really voting for their lives. And then lastly, when the Republicans took over the legislature, and had a governor in our state, the first thing they went after was rolling back the very things we want to expand the franchise. In fact, we had used those things for two election cycles. We won same-day registration, expanded early voting. In 2013, they get elected and they come up with a plan called retrogression. And then four years later, we beat them in court and the court said that for four years, they had engaged in racism with surgical precision. And they had engaged in gerrymandering to the point that one judge said they had created an unconstitutionally constituted legislature. Why is that? Because the states that we call red are not red. They are low voting states. 
They are voter suppression states. That's what we have not talked about in this country. I hear the talking heads saying, this is surprising. To me, to us, it's not in the Poor People's Campaign. We already knew. We knew before we did a study. Then we did a study and we found out in 15 states, brother, if poor people just voted from one to 19% higher than they did in 2016, in 15 states, including Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, they could overcome the voting margin of victory in 2016. You talked about the fights you had in North Carolina with the legislature. Is it a policy fight you think you need to have or a policy victory, or is it a persuasion of the populace that you need? The problem with voting is you don't get to make a choice. The Constitution, the 15th Amendment, says nobody has the right to deny or abridge my right to vote. You got to understand that before Trump ever went in office, since 2010, 26 states have passed racist voter suppression laws. Since 2010, in 2016, Trump won Wisconsin by 30,000 votes, but 250,000 votes were suppressed through voter suppression. Even in North Carolina, where we won, we still lost 150 early voting sites. That was a form of suppression. So you have to do both and. We don't know. I was teasing the other day that Obama said this, but we've been saying in the movement for a while, we don't know what it would look like in this country for 60% of the people to vote, 65%, 75%, because it hasn't happened. Normally only about 50% vote. So what you have to do is you have to have massive voter participation. You have to have voter protection. We need right now full restoration of the Voting Rights Act that was gutted in 2013. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, this is like putting up your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm and then complaining that you get wet. We knew it was going to get worse after 2013. So it's really not either or, it's both hands. We got to have massive persuasion, massive participation, massive protection, and then we need policy change as well. If I can just add one ray of sunshine in this inclement weather that's being described by Reverend Barber, I think one of the big wins in the 2020 election is the use of sports stadiums and arenas for Mm -hmm. voting because they understand how to accommodate large numbers of people. They know how to do line management. People can come inside in places where it's inclement weather. So we now have 21 arenas for this election season throughout the country that are going to be polling places. And I think that's a clear win and a very safe and secure way to vote. Can I ask something kind of a little bit broader? But is it your belief that if the U.S. income inequality gap is shrunk, that that will, to a certain extent, just kind of de facto increase voter participation? Narrowing the income inequality gap, if you mean by raising the minimum wage, by allowing people the time and space to vote, by communicating and reaching out and explaining how policies affect people's day-to-day lives, both economically and socially, and I think in a fair and just way, yes. So in that way, there is a linkage to income. I think people just understand at a basic human level that by narrowing that gap, we are living in a more fair and more just society. There's no one silver bullet when it comes to dealing with systemic racism, voter suppression, and how it impacts all people and how it fundamentally, as I say, systemic racism, voter suppression is not just against black and brown people, it's against democracy itself. And we know we need policy changes. We know we need persuasion. We know we need logistics. We have to have all of it, not some of it. As uh, Lorraine said earlier, many millions, tens of millions of Americans have already voted. I'm wondering if there is anything you are seeing already in the numbers you have seen or some of the reporting on the numbers you've seen 
that you think is positive, that's possibly negative? What's your pre-election takeaway, in part based on the work you've been doing up until this point? What I am amazed, I've been out, the lines that are showing up in places where, like Texas, they've already outdistanced the entire vote in 2016. In North Carolina, we're almost at the same place. The numbers that I'm seeing of people, regardless of race, creed, and color, who are saying, we are voting for something different. We are voting for change. We are voting for our lives. And really, that's when you have a fundamental shift in voting. When people understand their vote is connected to their health care, their vote is connected to their living ways, their vote is connected to their lives, to their very lives. We started out, lastly, to do 500,000 calls in 10 states to poor and low-wealth voters who were infrequent voters. We had such a response that yesterday, 2 million poor and low-wealth of all races, creed, and colors called 20% of them because we called voted early. That's 400,000 people. I just got these numbers yesterday. So there is something happening even in the midst of all of this pain. Reverend Barber, Lorraine Powell-Jobs, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the election. Really, that's it. I mean, there are other things happening in the world, big corporate mergers, uh, America's formal departure from the Paris Climate Accord on Wednesday. But the next four years will be indelibly imprinted with what happens over the next 48 hours. So beginning tomorrow, we'll be partnering with our sister show, Axios Today, to provide a series of short episodes focused on the election. Please keep checking your feed beginning in the afternoon for on-the-ground analysis of what's happening across the country and why it matters. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled shows in a couple of days. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Deviled Eggs Day, and our election episodes begin tomorrow.